All right, so we're uh, in Matthew chapter 13. We'll actually have to go back and look at verse 12. We didn't quite get through with that last week in my class, so uh, just briefly there, and then we'll begin with verse 13. It's February the 2nd, and this in our uh, work and study through Matthew is lesson number 97. So we're moving on as fast as we can. Well, we literally hit a roadblock here because there's so much information, because there's a transition. We've looked at a good bit of information from Matthew here, who again, whose focus is upon the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's focusing on the Jewish mind, the Jewish mindset. You see that predominantly throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So we're still there, and all that just kind of comes out here once again. Now Jesus is at a point where He stopped with them. He's, he's done addressing uh, them, talking about the religious Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, throwing out so much wonderful information, literally interpreting properly the words from the Old Testament texts and so forth. And because it's not suiting them, because it's running cross-grain with what they've come to believe and come to expect from the Word of God. In other words, it's challenging their traditions. They have turned Him off. In fact, they've already started back in a chapter ago where they began for the first time and they start making mention about putting Him to death. So that's the, uh, I guess you could say, the social environment that surrounds Matthew when he's recording this, okay, that's what he's going back and looking at, but specifically, it particularly identifies what Jesus is experiencing right now as far as the way he is being received. So we come to a point right here, and you might say it's a, it's a line in the sand, because he's tired of it. I mean, he's, he's done all that he can do, and of course, all judgment is to be committed to Him. He knows what's in the heart of people. He knows that these people are not going to change. And He stops right there. And He does something a little different. What is that? Well, He starts teaching in parables. That's what He's doing. He's teaching in parables where the exact meaning, the specific meaning can only be found for those who want to hear. And for those who are in any way challenged by what Jesus is saying, or maybe challenged not the best word, maybe even bored, or challenged to maybe think a little longer, think a little deeper in order to understand what He's talking about, they're not willing to do that. And He literally puts them over here and He says, no more. No more. And they'll ask Him plainly, why, why are you doing this? Well, back in verse, uh, verses 3-9, through nine, He goes and gives this first parable, which we refer to as the parable of the, the, soil, the sower and the soils, four different soils, and we're going to look at that today. But he doesn't even interpret it. He just lays it out there. So in verse 10, his disciples, specifically the 12 who've already been identified as apostles, and those others who come out of sincerity, they're true followers. They want to know more. They want the Word of God living and working in their life. He's, he's focusing on those folks, but even they come and they say, well, wait a minute. Why are you all of a sudden speaking in parables? Why are you doing that? It's not been your way. And he says something along this line. He says, well, for you, it's been given to know the mysteries of God. And last week, we, week before, we looked at that word mysteries. He's simply talking about uh, Gentile inclusion, the simple gospel, if you will. These things which were hidden back in Old Testament times. He says, that's, that's not for them. They've turned away from that. It is for you. So listen and hear. It's that old thing, to whom much is given, much is required. He'll say later, to those who have, more will be given. And if you don't have, it'll be taken away from you. This is what he's talking about. So he's responding to that. And then in verse 11, or rather verse 12, he makes that statement very, very plain, very, very clear. We are to hear, hear the Word of God. We are to allow that Word of God to cause us to examine ourselves. That never changes. 
Paul didn't let that change. He told the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see, even as believers, whether you be in the faith, whether you're actually in the faith as a believer, or if you're operating properly in the faith as a believer, that's a good thing to do. Is it not? We want to know, is the Word of God dominating my life? Or have I gotten off to the right here, or off to the left, and some other thing? Quite frankly, am I becoming worldly? Have I moved away from the clear teaching of God? We are to hear, we are to examine, and then the right response is what? When the Word of God touches us about something in our heart that needs to change, what is our response? It's one word. It begins with an R. <laughs> Repent. And this is the message that Matthew will not deviate from. It was Jesus' message when He began His public ministry. Before that, it was the message of John the Baptist. It remains the message throughout the New Testament. It's about hearing the Word of God and acting on the Word of God. So we pick up in verse 13, and all this has transpired. He's answered the question about teaching in parables. He's that in verse 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And the implication is here, plainly, and in other places, it's that way because it's what they want. It's what they have decided to do. They've weighed the cost you might say. And they say, I ain't going there. That's too costly. Too costly. And Jesus recognizes this. So He expounds on the fact that these religious Jews and other hard-hearted people, as they're called, that they have made this choice to refuse the truth. And this is always a dangerous posture for anyone. In fact, right here, as I said, this is a line in the sand. For them, as Jewish, this is too many times. And we're reminded that our God of love is also a God of judgment. That He's holy. And that He's right and He's righteous. And we have obligations when we hear the Word of God. Listen, this is the this, is this same Word that's, that's going to be there at mining your judgment as believers at the judgment seat of Christ. What you've thought, what you've done, what you've said, what you've neglected to do, as Jesus Himself says, every, what? Idle word spoken. And that means every reckless or careless word spoken, you will, and I, <laughs> I will give an account of. That's what He tells us. And we need to wake up, I think, sometimes and realize that that day is coming. That day is coming. Just as sure as I'm sitting here looking at you and you're looking at me, that day is coming. I don't know who's going to be present. I hope I'm there by myself, don't you? I do. I don't want, I don't want listen, I don't want my true motivations sometime to be revealed. I don't want those behind me to realize the truth. But God says one day it's going to be exposed. And I would encourage you this morning by saying, to the extent you believe the Word of God, that you believe in the power of His Word to cleanse you and to give you direction, to give you strength over things in your life that only the Word of God can do, to that extent, you can rest knowing this great truth. You can. You can find a rest as a believer, or as he says in Hebrews, as the people of God. Well, right here <clears throat> at this particular time, <clears throat> MacArthur states this. He says, this is actually what Jesus has done in moving to parables, shutting them down. He says, this is actually uh, a, a second fulfillment of God's judgment or God's wrath toward Israel. And I just thought this was interesting. The first one would have been, as he describes it back in 586 B.C. with the Babylonian captivity, you know what happened there. That would have been the first fulfillment, but he sees this as a literally a second fulfillment because they want to continue with their hardness of hearing, their hardness of heart, and he puts a stop to the clarity on their behalf anyway. In fact... The parables themselves, of course, would be a type of judgment against Israel. 
Later on, you know, in the, in the New Testament era there, uh, the, as the church begins, as the transitional period there, uh, even, even this issue with tongues, if you go back, remember that was mentioned, that that was done as a judgment against Israel. Different languages that they could not understand. An aspect about that that people don't often look at and study. And it's also a good opportunity to be reminded regarding God's wrath. And you've probably <clears throat> heard these, uh, these five uh, examples, if you will, or categories of God's wrath before. But consider these. There's God's eternal wrath. We know what that is. That'll last forever one way or another for an individual. Obviously, His eternal wrath involves eternal punishment. Then you've got what's described as eschatological wrath or that which comes as a uh, result of you know, the periods of time throughout, epics of time coming to an end, and some of them concluding with God pouring out His wrath. We see that as we, of course, look at studies of the end times and what uh, the Bible uh, teaches us, particularly in the Revelation. Then you've got what's often described as God's... Uh, calamitous wrath, or sometimes referred to as cataclysmic wrath, and you see God perhaps moving upon nature, whatever, like the flood, okay, and you have that kind of wrath coming out from God. And then you have one I think that's, that's near and dear to everybody, and that's this uh, wrath that's associated with sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Because that's true for the believer and the unbeliever. Is it not? The Bible's clear. Galatians, we reap what we sow. And then you've got the fifth and final one here that seems to point to exactly what's happening with the Jews here, the religious Jews. And that is the wrath of abandonment. Abandonment. And that abandonment might be temporary, and only God knows if it seals the deal. Only God knows if those people who have continually refused to listen have burned their last opportunity. Now don't get the picture of somebody just, oh, I've changed, I've heard the Word, I understand, I want to be saved, I'll come, I'll repent. No, that's not what happens with these folks. They remain in their unbelief. They will never come, and Christ is the only one who knows that. But you have the wrath of abandonment. In fact, later on in chapter 15 of Matthew, verse 14, if you look at that, they're, talk, they're talking about the Jews and their lack of response. And he literally says there, he says, leave them alone. Don't, don't, teach, don't do nothing. Don't minister to them in any way. He says they are, that's where he says again, they are blind leaders of the blind. They've chosen to be that way. So what I hit on all this this morning in preparation... We don't want to be like that, do we? We want to hear the Word of God. We want to respond to it rightly. So he shares that. And he says they hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't see. You know, you've raised kids, right? You know what that's like. In verse 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, he says, is being fulfilled. And we see this <coughs> relationship here, I think, that MacArthur was talking about. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. He says, You will keep hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. And then for, let's just do 15. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have, ch and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would Heal them. Our God is a Savior. Yes, He can be wrathful. He can emerge in judgment. He can do that. But He's a saving God. He's a forgiving God. But we must respond to the truth. So this is nothing new. He is a forgiving God. In fact, if you went to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14... I'll read. Now this is after Solomon's completed the temple and so forth. And this comes out, he says, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, God's wrath, 
Verse 14, he begins and says, And my people who are called by my name, they humble themselves and they pray and they seek my face and do what? Turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's the heart of God. That's His desire. That's what He wants to do. And of course, that transitions into everybody's individual life. We hear the Word of God on any, on any front. Anything that He's challenging us, anything that the Word of God and the Spirit of God is uh, making plain in our life, as only He can do, getting our attention over, for we need to come before Him in repentance. His desire is to heal. His desire is to restore. I love that verse that says He can restore, and he can, only He can restore what the locusts have eaten. God can do that because He's a loving God. Later, again in Matthew, when we get up to chapter 23, and we often go here to, to look at Jesus' most scathing words. You know, this chapter 23 of Matthew is, is, the, is the woe chapter. There are eight woes there where Christ begins and Matthew records, Woe unto you, woe unto Israel. A warning at the end of all that. When he goes through, that's where he calls them, you know, whited walls. And, you know, you, you go out and you influence someone for Judaism and they wind up being twice the son of hell that you are. And his words are scathing toward them. How does he end that? After displaying such wrath, how does he end that? He ends it in chapter 23, verse 37, a verse you're very familiar with. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, listen, to gather your children together. Do you get the picture? It's this. This is what the words in picture. Okay? I want to gather them together. He says, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you, here's the problem, you are unwilling. You have made a choice. You want things the way they are. You don't want the boat rocked. You certainly do not wish to repent. You certainly don't wish to go back and admit that for a long, long time you've been getting it wrong. They don't want to do that. Too much face to lose, perhaps. Too much money involved. Too many social relationships that would go down the tubes if I follow God in this regard. Is that not the same problem, same issue, same dynamic that we deal with today? Is that not true? The human heart has not changed. Not once, not once. Verse, where am I at? <clears throat> Verse 16 and 17 together here, if you will. And Christ says, and how wonderful it would have been to hear these words, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. They truly hear. That is, they comprehend. 17, for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Does this not make us cringe a bit when we think about the tremendous, tremendous opportunities that we have to hear the Word to access the Word of God. I have the entire Bible in three different translations. Honey, you got my phone. On my phone back there. Along with the commentary, if I want that. I don't have an excuse in this day and time for not knowing the Word of God. To say nothing about opportunities to worship, opportunities to serve. We're affluent. Everybody in this room, I don't care what your socioeconomic status is, you on the world scale are affluent. This morning, you're rich. To whom much is given, much will be required. There, there will be a test one day, okay? We, we will give an account. 
And I pray that it's based on the fact that we heard the word. It touched our heart in whatever area. It's different for everybody. But there's one general thing that's true for everybody. He'll cover this later. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And we've all answered that question this morning, one way or another. You've answered that question. Do you need to go back and bring any clarity to it now while you can? We have the Word of God written in our hearts today as believers. The Word of God is our great joy. It's our great delight. Why? Because we know of the security, of the purity, of, of every, everything that we need for stability in this life, whether it's physical, spiritual, whatever, comes from the revealed Word of God. That's what we have. And I would remind you, always think of it this way, for the Bible says that Christ Himself is the living Word of God. To know His Word is to know Him. How else can we have the mind of Christ, as the Bible says? How else can we think, truly think like Him? How can we do that apart from His revealed Word? We have that. We have the Holy Spirit that, con that continues to convince us. The word's often translated convict, but convince us of what sin is, of what righteousness truly is, and of a pending judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We read that from John's Gospel. Well, he has so much, so much here. His, ver his words in verse 17 here just, just highlight this tremendous privilege of hearing the Word of God. And as I say, we do not have an excuse. Unbelief, continual unbelief to go on your way, to keep going your own path against what the Word of God has revealed in your heart against what the Spirit of God is telling you to do, driving you to a point of repentance. This is the experience of those hearing here. To continue to go that way results in a spiritual blindness. Can't see anymore. You could parallel back to, I think it's Romans 1, maybe 2 there. I understand the word there is literally that of a moron when it talks about trying to decipher something spiritually because these people have gone so long in opposition against the revealed Word of God, they don't get it anymore. They don't really have the capability of deciphering the truth. They don't have it anymore. It's a dangerous position to be in. Well, this leads us up, this, this expose, if you will, of of Israel at this time and where they are and why Christ has moved to parables leads us up to this first parable. Now, he's already given the parable. As I said, back in verses 3 through 9, he gave the parable, but specifically did not explain the parable. They had to ask. So he goes through this and raises these issues about them being chosen to hear this and others not being chosen to hear clearly. He covers all of that. And then he goes back and he explains the parable. So that's where we are at verse 18 right now as he begins this response. Now remember, he's got his selected group there. He's got the, his, his private group, his private audience, the, the 12 for sure. And then I think you can go, where is it, uh, Mark, Mark chapter 4, verse 10 kind of clarifies it. There are other believing disciples, genuine believers there who are in this group. Again, Mark 4.10 would be a parallel scripture. So you got his followers and you got the twelve. They see that clearly. He's going to talk about four different groups right here. He's going to talk about four uh, categories, if you will. It's not to say that they're totally, uh, I don't know, inclusive of every pop. I, I, I think perhaps they are. And he's talking about those and how they hear and respond, or maybe better said, don't respond to the Word of God. He gives these four. Three of them do not respond. 
None of those first three that he's going to give, talking about the seed being sowed and so forth, they're not fleshly Christians. It doesn't, doesn't depict that type of person at all. It depicts a person who does not respond rightly to the Word of God. There's nothing genuine that happens there. There's no transition. No justification occurs. And then in the fourth one, you do have a person who hears with their ears, and they respond. They respond in repentance. So that's where he's going, and he lays this out. You might say, well, why would he do that with this particular group? After all, are these not people who've made a choice to follow him, right? With one exception, right? Well, we know Judas is in that group, and we know that others are there, as I said, who are identified as genuine uh, believers, but what must they know? They must know this information in order to be able to what? To minister to other people. To be discerning with others. Have you ever been through a, a point in your life, maybe perhaps as a, a young believer, young person, teenager, young adult, when through the circumstances of your life, usually linked in some way to your failures, your spiritual failures, you, you go back and you re-examine, that you look at your heart and your life, and you look at your actions, you look at your words, you, you look at what dominates you, what your priorities are. And for whatever reason, you ask that question once again. Am I truly a child of God? Do I truly belong to Him? Does the Bible give me anything that I can look at to, to use to examine where I am, even as we've already shared, as Paul says, I think it's the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. For a believer, when that kind of thing hits you, for a believer, what do you do? What do believers do that distinguishes them from non-believers? They run to Christ. They find themselves at His feet once again. They, they, they humble themselves. What does the unbeliever do? Goes the other way. Don't want to hear it. F fully content to hang on to something that might not even be genuine. Fear of being exposed or whatever. They don't want to go there. Now we run to Christ if we've experienced Christ. If that's our experience, if we've been to the cross, if we know what it's like, and I love to put it this way, if we know what it's like to have our sin burden lifted, if that's a real experience for us in this life, it's hard to get the circumstances of life or the lies of the, of the evil one to take us back past that. Because we know what happened then. We know what happened we know that we repented, that we trusted. We didn't come with any deals. We didn't come with any uh, vague or promises. We didn't come because uh, Betty and John came or any of that. We didn't come because we didn't come before him and join the church or get baptized or do any of that because it was good for business or any of that. We came because we were confronted with our sin. And we didn't want to carry that sin burden. We understood the Word of God that we would give an account. And we came and we laid it out before God and we experienced His forgiveness. We know if that happened. Because I can assure you it is a tool of Satan himself to make you think that that really didn't take. Okay? To make you question that. I dare say he would use the same language in your mind that he used in the garden. Is that really what God said? Is that really what he meant? Is that really what happened to you? And we're tempted to give some validity to that because we know the flesh. We know that we continue to bear this flesh. Only the Word of God, only the indwelling Spirit of God can teach us in that regard and restore confidence to us, to restore that level of security that's genuine, that's being attacked. But in order to get there, we must go before Him and His Word. Well, some are responsive, some are superficial, some are worldly in their responses. These are the first three. And then some are just simply receptive. They hear the Word and they respond to the Word rightly. And God will bless. Verse 19, When anyone hears the Word of the kingdom and does not understand it, 
What happens? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Wow. Now that's a very active picture being portrayed there. And I like saying there, there's still the battle going on, right? There's the battle for souls. There's a battle out there. There's another voice that's always uh, <laughs> preaching to you, talking to you, particularly to unbelievers, throwing the allurements, if you will, of the world out there in order to keep someone back from a true repentance. And he, he uses an analogy here. It says, this is the one whom, where seed was sown beside the road. And you'd have to look and dig and understand. It can mean beside the road. It literally means in the road and beside the road. It pictures that whole area where people walk. That's the point. You walk in the road unless you can't, and then you walk on the side of the road. So what happens to the ground? This is, this is the word picture that Jesus is painting here. It gets hard, doesn't it? It gets packed down. And when he says word here, it is that word we're most familiar with. It's that word logos, which means something said. But it includes the thoughts intended. This is what they're hearing. It has to do with reasoning, that, that which is challenging. You hear the word that's, that provokes you to thought and to reason, and you choose to go some other way. It's about mental faculty. This is, this is what's understood by that word. And he says further that the evil, and then you'll notice in your translation probably one is italicized. The evil comes or the evil one comes. It's that Greek word, naros, and it literally means hurtful. It means that which is evil or that which has an evil effect or influence on us. That's what's out there. He says to literally snatch away the word harpazo, to literally take it and jerk it away. It's a violent motion. It's a quick, violent motion. Ooh, as if to say, don't read that. Don't listen to that. That's the Word of God. That will change your life forever. That'll, that'll give you everything that you want. Can't have that. Boop. Pull it out. That's the picture that's set up here. It's plucked. Quick and fast. Take the Word of God away. That's the power of the Word of God. That's, that's what the Bible says will never, ever pass away. That's what says not one jot, not one tittle, that is, not, not one crossing of the T, not one period will ever fall away from the Word of God. No wonder the devil says, let's get rid of that. We don't want that. People are changed by the Word of God. But as we see, only those who hear, only those who yield, only those who can claim, that is my desire. That's how I know Christ. It's through His Word. So that's what happens here. You might say this is a picture of a person who's hard on the face. On the surface, they're hardened can make that analogy as well. They're hard-hearted, stiff-necked, a number of words, unconcerned, indifferent, a chosen resistance to the truly spiritual. No repentance, no shame. The Word has not done its work. Proverbs 1.7 talks about that the person is a fool who hates wisdom and who hates instruction. Or Psalm 14.1 as you know, is the fool who has said in their heart, what? There is no God. As we say down here, there ain't no God. There is no God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 would remind us that it is the God of this world who's got a temporary reign at the allowance of Christ Himself. He has blinded the minds, it says, of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the Gospel. That's what it's about. The truth about who Christ is, what He's done. The truth about who we are and what our need truly is. That's what changes a person when we accept that true repentance takes place. So, that's the person, that's the example where the seed is thrown by the wayside on this hard, hard surface. 
And Jesus uses this, this for His first example here. In verse 20, He goes on, "...the one whom seed was sown on the rocky places..." <clears throat> His, this is the man who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. Boy, this can be deceptive, right? He hears it, he receives it with joy. Let me read 21. Yet, he has no firm root in himself. Didn't take. Didn't take at all. Heard the truth. Just didn't, just didn't get down, I, I'll say it this way, to the level of repentance. There was no change but is only temporary here as he describes it. These are Christ's words, temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, a key phrase, because of the Word of God, immediately he falls away. Says it in a nutshell, doesn't it? But go back and look. He makes reference to it being sown in rocky places. He first mentioned this back in verse 5 when he gave the parable. And this is not talking about like loose rock on top of the ground. That's not what he's talking about. It's not even the same word. It's talking about a rocky foundation underneath. It paints the picture of a veneer being in place, right? Something that covers the truth. The hardness, rock. It's covered over. Whereas the other one, you know, appears to be, you know, just on the face. On, on initial perception, they, they were hardened. Well, this one's hardened underneath, down below. You might not look at the face and see anything, but down below where it counts, where real change takes place, nothing has happened. He says they're hearers, they hear, hear the Word and immediately receive it with joy. At least this is the perception. It sounds good on its face, but it's simply an emotional response. It's not a spiritual response. It might reflect one who sees the goodness of God, all the wonder of God. They might even see an attesting miracle. We, the, the New Testament is full of that. But there's no transition of heart based upon the Word of God. It's all about what God can do for me, what God can give me. But to change me? to change my desires, to pull me away from the allurements of this world and, and place me in the family of God with new priority. And I don't want none of that. That's what he's talking about. A shallow, he says, a shallow experience of the gospel must be avoided lest people be left in a state of delusion and false assurance. Listen, walking the aisle, raising a hand, uh, right now, a card, checking the box, taking class, uh, what else? Being confirmed, being baptized even, holding a position in the church, any of these things, that's not what it's about. That's not necessarily a sign of what has happened down in a person's heart. God knows. God knows if that initial veneer on the surface has been penetrated. And I believe there's ample, ample proof to show when it has been penetrated, that that is indeed recognizable and knowable on, be, on behalf of other Christians. We see that. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. That's what he said, only temporary. The word literally can't get in. No firm root. All the changes on the surface didn't get down to the depths of the heart. Didn't affect the desires. Certainly didn't affect an evaluation of one's sin. Seeing oneself as, as selfish and resistant against the things of God. And seeing Christ specifically as that one and only Savior offered. The only thing that was ever given. That's not even involved. And I thought it was interesting when he makes reference here, he says, when affliction or persecution arises. You know what I'm glad he didn't say? I'm glad he didn't say, but when, when you fall to temptation. I'm glad he didn't say that. <laughs> We've already mentioned the flesh. He's talking about something on a larger scale here. He's talking about being challenged about who God is. Who is 
Christ? Do you, do you truly respond to Him as the Savior of the world? Is that what you did? This is what's being challenged. This is what's coming. He says because of the Word, the Word about Christ, about who He is, I find some level of comfort. It's not about your failures, okay? It's not about that. It's not about my failures at this point. It's about what I've done, truly done with the person of Christ. When that's challenged, based upon His Word, He said there's a falling away. Why? Because there's no commitment to that. It's never been embraced. Never has been. And He says they fall away. The Greek word scandalizo, which of course we get our word scandalize from. It means to stumble or, or to fall. He uses the word here that this immediately happens. But sometimes, as MacArthur offers in his commentary, he says this may take years before it ever emerges. Before it's ever challenged. Why, why would that happen? No, nobody challenges you because they see the surface. They have no real reason to believe that you might not be genuine. They have no real reason to believe that the Word of God and its ability, its work of convicting uh, along with the Holy Spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment, that's never happened. They have no reason to believe that because they're looking at the outside. But when the rubber meets the road, when there's a true challenge, again, as it says, based upon the Word of God, the person immediately falls away. Because there's nothing there to sustain Him. There's no love. There's no dedication. There's been no purposing of heart toward the things of God. William Arno, he was a Scottish commentator. Here's a quote from him. He says, If a person's profession of Christ does not involve a deep conviction of sin, a genuine sense of lostness, a strong desire for the Lord to cleanse and purify, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and a love of His Word, along with a genuine willingness to suffer for His sake, there is not root to His spiritual life. And it will be only a matter of time before His religious house falls. Sobering words. An astute observation. This is exactly what the Word is trying to communicate here. We may finish up here. In verse 22, he gives, Christ gives us the third, third example. He says, "...in the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns." You got it by the roadside. You got it in rocky places with a rocky substructure. Now you've got it sown among the thorns. And this is the man who hears the Word. And what? This, this strikes against us. I've already made reference to the affluency of our society, right? He says, And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. Chokes the Word out. That's, that's the picture. It can't breathe. It can't get nourishment. There, there, it's, a, it's a clear picture of things typified by thorns here. Things coming in and causing so much irritation, so much trouble because of the things of the world, as he says, that there's no time, there's no energy. There's no... Uh, you, you can't... You don't give yourself over to those things because, or to the things of God because the things of the world are eating you up. You've got them wrongly prioritized. You're allowing them to drain you. There's no trust in God. Amidst His specific promises about meeting our needs and providing for us, it's not that we're to be lazy. Oh, come what may, I'll just live my life. God will take... That's not what He's talking about. He tells us what you, what you set out to do, you're to do with excellence. You're to do it as unto the Lord, as it says in Colossians, and not unto men. Those things are true. But our heart, our desire, even in our work, even in our families, everything that we do must be based, must be driven first and foremost on the person of Christ and bolstered by His Word. Again, how we know Him. How He gives us clear direction from His Word. That's what He's telling us. Resist these thorns. 
People can't come to Christ. This is the implication here. They can't come to Him because of this. They literally sit down and weigh the cost and come up short. I'm not doing that. It's too costly. The worry of the world. And literally, I like it, the, the word world here is actually, it's a word that means the age. Okay? Where we are right now. Could that, could that, could that be any more predominant, any more important right now than in our time? When there's so much, I mean, technology alone, technology alone comes into us. And we often, we act like we have more concern about our young folks who can't get away, it seems, from these machines and devices and communication. And you got people, kids committing suicide because they, they got acts on Facebook or something. I mean, it's crazy. Anything that can come in subtly and take away from us our very thoughts. Well, in my community group, we're going through this uh, book by Albert Martin about the God-fears. Where have all the God-fears gone? I don't know that book's available now at the conference. We're going through that book. And he takes a little page or two in there and talks about this very thing. And he isolates it to the fact, he said, you know, it's a tool of the devil. They want you, 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 you I hope we're not training our young people to, to be uncomfortable just having a time to sit and to listen to the voice of God, to turn off every device, people are becoming very uncomfortable with that. And it's a tool to keep us constantly focused on things, whether it's a TV or a phone or a laptop or an iPad or whatever, filled with worldly things, and we literally, God cannot get through. We have to make a purposeful attempt to hear his word. This could be a thorn in many lives. Well, here, people latch on rather to, as he says, the deceitfulness of wealth. Luke tells us in 12:15 that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. They don't work that way. He talks about this choking, this, this again, this word picture that literally keeps the truth, the power from spreading up in a person's life. It's really choked out by these other things that aren't near as valuable. In no way. They don't even come close. And it becomes unfruitful. In other words, it produces nothing. But not, not just converts. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a change in a person's life. All the good benefits that come from the Word of God take taking residence in our heart and life. And we've made it to verse 23. Let me, let me finish up here. And then he lists the fourth one here. And he speaks of one on whom on the good soul. And he says this is, as Christ explained it, this is the man who hears the Word and who understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The first thing you get out of this, if you want to look at what testifies to uh, that of a true believer characteristics, is that they produce fruit. There is fruit produced. Now you would be in error if you said, if, just thinking in terms, oh, d does that just relate to bringing people to Christ or seeing people born again? Look, that's the work of God. Not talking about that specifically. And I love again, and I did, um, I look closely at MacArthur's word here in commentary because he mentions two kinds of fruit. He talks about that fruit of attitude and the fruit of behavior. And of course, when you talk about the fruit of attitude, you go straight to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which is what? Fruits of the Spirit. By the way, if you want to know what Christ was like to sit and talk to Him, well, those things characterize Him as well. He's our model in all those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those manifested in your life? Are they manifested in my life? Does that little spiritual alarm go off? in me when I realize it didn't used to go off when I realize that I'm impatient 
I don't have the patience I need. Why don't I have the patience? Because I'm focused on self. I'm focused on those words that just came at me. After all, I'm worth more than that, right? I don't have the patience to deal with that. Christ dealt with it patiently. You want to be like that? That's just one example. So we have this fruit of attitude. Then you've got the fruit of behavior. It's got to get down in us. It's got to change us. The Word of God is the only thing that will do that. In Colossians 1.6, he talks specifically about the Gospel and how it constantly is bearing fruit. This is an active Word. These are things that can be measured, can be handled. Lives are being changed. Our life is being changed. The Word of God, when received, will change our behavior. And you can throw speech into that. It will change the way that we talk. In fact, haven't you enjoyed, I mean, all the lessons that we had from Pastor and James, which highlighted how important the things that we say are, particularly when it comes to our judgment, the things that come out of our mouth. Christ is going to say that as well. The things that come, they generate from the heart, he says. He tells them plainly, it's not what goes in and is naturally eliminated. That's what Jesus says. It's the things which come out, he says, they come from the heart. <coughs> Only the Word of God can change our heart. And we can bear fruit. Now, he uses astronauts here. He says, what, a um, hundredfold? Knocks it down a notch. Sixtyfold? Thirty notch. 30-fold, but that in comparison to the numbers of that day would have been an astro astronomical amount of success. A lot of fruit. Why would He use that? He, why didn't Jesus use something smaller? Why didn't He just talk about you know, affecting a few people as important as that would be? No, He says this is the power of the Word of God. This is the power of a changed life. This is the church, the body of Christ, doing what it's supposed to do. This is the power. And it has great, great potential. And everybody in here who is a believer is a part of that today. What an awesome responsibility. What an awesome privilege. We're not spinning our wheels when we focus on the things of Christ, we do things that have an eternal impact. And he uses these astronomical numbers to convey that very thing. So let me finish. Bearing fruit, always, always the mark of a true believer because the Word of God makes changes in us. Let's just finish with Psalm 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams which yields its fruits, its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers.